Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Strategy Skills Podcast by Firms Consulting. So as you know, the world is awash with ideas, toolkits, best practices, summaries, basically anything that can tell us how we can capture some of the secret sauce that has made Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, Alphabet, and so on as successful as they have been. Much has been written about Amazon. I mean, Amazon has been in the news a lot. Many books have come out trying to explain to us what makes Amazon great. And what we've always noticed and what I've seen in particular is that many of the books tend to capture the essence of the philosophy of what Steve Jobs was doing. But if you wanted to apply that in the real world daily to your own company in a meeting, in a planning session, in a product review session, the mechanics of how to apply that philosophy has not been written down in many places. So you, you like the philosophy, it makes a lot of sense, but then how do you actually implement it? What's the mechanics? What do you do first? What do you do second? There are also balances. Some things are counterintuitive. There are certain trade-offs involved. Now, Bull Carr, who I'm going to have on the show today, was with Amazon for about 15 years. Uh, he's been involved in many things, from launching the digital media players, at least learning the digital media space, launching things from Prime Video, Amazon Studios, Amazon Music, digital music, and so on, whether directly running it or being part of the team. He's been through some of the most important parts of Amazon's growth, either working closely with Jeff Bezos or for Jeff Bezos' close lieutenants. Now, I wanted him on the show because he's recently put out a book called Working Backwards. And I thought that his ability to break down what Amazon was doing and how they did it in a mechanics-driven approach was going to be very useful to our listeners. So while I've read many things about Amazon, this is one of the few books and Bill is one of the few people that can teach you the tools so that you can apply it at your own careers and your own companies. Welcome, Bill. Thank you, Michael. So where are you at the moment? Where are you doing this call from? I'm in Seattle. Well, that would make sense, right? You're in Seattle, a tech center. So let's get straight into this, right? So I've spent some time reading about your work and so on. The first thing I want to ask you about this book, the idea for the book, is it almost a memoir linked in with the lessons of Amazon? Which one does it fall more towards? Because it reads like a memoir, a very entertaining memoir at that. Well, um, we think it's sort of like one part memoir, one part uh, uh, sort of, you know, detailed sort of management book. Yeah. And our intent here really was to uh, pass on what we learned to the next generation of business leaders, because uh, all all companies that uh, all fast growing companies 
tend to encounter roughly the same set of problems. And uh, what we found, you know, so, so we've seen these problems yeah. in Amazon. And the driving vision really, at, you know, there's actually an origin story behind sort of how we decided, why we decided to write yeah. this book, how that happened. And the origin story is that uh, a little over three years ago, uh, when I was spending time as an entrepreneur in residence mm -hmm. with a venture capital firm called Mavron, mm -hmm. I was at an offsite meeting, uh, a summit for the CEOs of, of the portfolio companies. And also in attendance was a CEO who um, shall go nameless, but a very prominent Fortune 25 CEO. And there was a roundtable discussion with this person and the topic of Amazon came up and yeah. this CEO said, Amazon, I don't know how Amazon does it. How have they managed to be so successful yeah. in such a wide variety of businesses from cloud computing to e-commerce, digital devices, digital media? How is this possible? We're still trying to get our core business right. And it was sort of at that moment that... Um, it hit home a realization or a, a belief that I had for some time that uh, something very special had happened at Amazon that the world doesn't know about or understand. Mm -hmm. Most people know or understand the special things about <laughs> the, the exciting products sure. and devices and services like AWS that the company created. But what no one really knows is that something else special happened, which was uh, effectively a, a, a new management science that was created. Yeah where Amazon, you know, as a fast growing company encountered the same sort of problems that all growing companies encounter. But Amazon took a very different approach or an often counterintuitive approach mm -hmm. to how they thought about solving and managing and addressing those problems. And so I, I shared, you know, I shared the, the, I shared that discussion with my co-author Colin uh, about what happened at this offsite. And I said, you know, um, no one understands how Amazon does this. There's no source. There's no definitive source on this topic. This is an important uh, story and important information to share with the world to answer answer this question. How has Amazon done it? And and we, we, we you know, we believe that the next generation of business leaders would really benefit from knowing this answer. And so that's really the genesis. We wanted mm -hmm. to pass that on. And uh, uh, that's when we started to work on the book. Well, to start, I think it's an extremely well-written book. I must give you guys credit for that. I've read many pieces about Amazon. I've read books by people who have a, sort of an inside track at Amazon and those who claim to have an inside track at Amazon. But this book is different, I think, because you have a very good balance between management principles and one thing you did very well was those four stories at the end about Kindle, Prime, streaming, and so on. Because mm -hmm. you really felt like you were part of the drama as those decisions were being made. So I'm going to jump into some of those things because there's a lot of interesting things here, right? Let's talk about uh, the move into Kindle, right? Because at the time, movies looked like it would be the biggest thing that people would invest in if they went digital. But as the book points out, you know, Jeff Bezos said, let's step back and find a better way to go digital. The book explains why he said these things, but to an outsider looking in, it seems obvious that if he had picked movies, it would have been the safe bet. It would have been the obvious bet. It would have been the bet the investment community would have supported. But he picked 
ebooks, which was a very small space. Nobody was really making ebooks, and he had to build this whole ecosystem. So, how do the Amazon principles work to allow him and the firm to take that bet and build something that nobody would have wanted to have built? Well, it first helps to set the scene. So, the scene is it's the beginning of 2004. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 2003, Amazon had just finished the year with $5.7 billion in revenue, which, you know, sounds fantastic. There are many companies that would give yes. their right, right arm to have $5.7 billion in revenue. Um, but there were problems. So problem number one is that actually, uh, you know, everyone thinks of Amazon today as the sprawling store that sells everything. Well, it wasn't really the case then. Mm-hmm. We were just... We were beginning to branch out into other categories, but they weren't big. 77% of all of Amazon sales in 2003 were books, CDs, DVDs, and VHS tapes. So the physical media business. And the other thing to know is that that business was seeing uh, declining year-over-year growth rate. So growth mm-hmm. was decelerating. Yes, you have a nice graph about that as well. Uh, which is not not good. And so you were seeing sort of, you know, call it, 12, 13% growth year over year, which is not exactly, that's not hockey stick growth anymore. That's quite modest and it's decelerating. And then the other thing that was going on is that it was very clear that digital media, that the world was changing and media was going to go digital. And the, 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 the things that made it clear at that point were that the iPod had met, was now, yeah. you know, a little over a year old. There were more than a million of them. Napster had been around for, I think, a couple of years. And, you know, obviously tens of millions of people were using that to share music around the world. And, you know, photography had gone from, uh, you know, analog to digital. It, it, it didn't take a genius to figure out that the media was going digital. So... Uh, you know, at that point, the only uh, of the of the three, uh, you know, big media categories, books, music and, you know, video, which video being, you know, movies and TV shows, the only one that actually existed as a business at that point, only two uh, mm-hmm. music really on only on Apple, iTunes and iPod. And there was an ebook business, but it was a pathetic little business um uh for a couple reasons the 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 number one reason was that there were first of all there was a paltry selection of books to choose from you know there were more than well over a million books in print but i think there were only about twenty thousand ebooks to choose from number two the publishers in 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 one of the most short-sighted um moves in the history of Mm -hmm. business decided to price their ebooks the same price as a hardcover book yes which which <laughs> makes absolutely zero sense on you know about three different levels starting yeah. with not only the the P&L of the company but also from a consumer point of view like why would i pay the same money for this book and then the third problem was the only way you could read one of these books in those days was to download it to your PC or mm-hmm. your Mac and then yes, walk around with those you know, days. read it that way so this was not an attractive customer experience Movies and TV shows were, were nowhere to be found on the scene. Uh, the, the motion picture studios hadn't even licensed the right mm-hmm. to anyone yet to actually sell or rent these things electronically. So uh, so that's the scene. But then what do we do? So so probably the most logical thing to do would have, frankly, have been to chase after the music piece yeah. because that was one that was growing. And what's notable about what Jeff decided to do in 2004 was not to say, 
form some team and build the the our own clone of iTunes and iPod. And that's not what he did. Uh, what he did actually is he took my my manager Steve and I, mm -hmm. who were managing the 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 media business. I was managing half of it for the U.S. and he was managing it globally, and said, "I want to take you two guys off of that business, and you're going to go work on digital media full time." So the, so the first thing he focused on is like, how do I put the right leaders on this thing? Because this game is not this is not um, this is not a sprint. This is a marathon, and so I want some leaders who are going to work on this for a long time. And the second thing is, he said, we're not in a rush to go launch an iTunes iPod knockoff for the simple reason that what what's the point? The uh, customers already have that option. If we can't articulate some way in which our iTunes iPod knockoff is better and me offers meaningful value to customers over that, then there's no point in building that. Yeah. So let's take a step back and look at the whole playing field of digital media and ask, well, where can we actually invent something meaningful for customers that if we brought it to them, it would really create value. And so that's when through, you know, frankly, a series of meetings that uh, many, many months of research, meetings, discussions, we we landed on over time. Let's focus. Let's let's focus on ebooks. And the reason why we did this, we had an idea of a vision that said, look, if we could create a device, you know, one of these problems is that no one wants to read their book on their computer. So how do we create a device that people would read yes. their book? And what would that device look like? How would that work? What would be the capabilities of that device? It would need to work indoors and outdoors. You need to have a long battery life. You need to be able to hold many books on it. You'd need to be able to download them easily uh, and and it'd be connected to the internet no matter where you go, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all these things I'm describing sound very elementary today, but by the way, in 2004, 2005, they were not. Yes. Um, and so we had to go through a lengthy process to figure out, and what we did, was, we called it working, starting with the customer and working backwards. So yeah. we started, what was that customer experience we need to build? And then let's work backwards from there to figure out what do we need to do to to get there to build it? And for us, that was a, a lot of things we had to do. We had to we didn't know how to make a hardware device. We didn't even know how to make applications. We didn't know how to get the publishers to give us the rights to so many books, the right pricing. It's countless issues. And so uh, that was a lengthy process of of innovation and invention to get to Kindle and the ebook. So it sounds like if you use this as an example, but look at the other examples, right? It's very rare Amazon has had a breakout success. It looks as if you go down a path, you make a lot of mistakes, you have to constantly reinvent, constantly check, make sure you're putting out something that serves a customer need. It's almost as if you have to have a lot of grit and perseverance to see this through, as opposed to you have a set plan at the beginning. Of course, yes. I mean... One of, uh, and it's not just Amazon. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not as good at history of other companies, mm -hmm. but Apple's had no no lack of products that have been duds over the over time. You know, uh, the Lisa, or yes. they had a <laughs> handheld. They had their handheld sort of. I don't even remember what it was called anymore. The the their competitor to the Palm Pilot. I mean, yes, there have been countless. Uh, so, um, one of the things about Amazon's culture, what what about Jeff Bezos is recognizing that if you if you're actually going to invent things, you have to be you have to have a corresponding willingness to fail. Yeah. 
because yes. it's just it's just not possible for anyone to uh, only invent winners. You're going to be wrong sometimes, yes. and and sometimes you may be wrong more often than you're right. But um, uh, uh, but yeah, so it requires. Um, uh, Jeff would often say, you know, we need to be stubborn on the vision and flexible on the details. So that uh, and, you know, frankly, this one of the stories we tell is the story of the business that I uh, worked on and led, which was which is now known as Prime Video, uh, where we were stubborn on the vision. The vision is how do we have, you know, a great experience for customers to watch, you know, buy or subscribe to and watch movies and TV shows on any device wherever they are. But it took us, you know, seven years of experimentation and trial and error of, of, of services that people now have, never, have long since forgotten about. Amazon Unbox, Amazon Video On Demand are the precursors to yeah. Prime Video that um, uh, uh, didn't work very well, uh, you know, to, 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 that ultimately got us there. Yeah, so one of the common themes is, you know, when I was a partner advising CEOs and so on, a very common thing clients would ask us to do is, given the resources they have, where should they go next? What is their next adjacency move? And it's a big field of strategy, adjacency mapping, right? But one of the consistent themes from reading the book is that Jeff and, well, the Amazon culture is not to do that. It's not to say, what can we do based on what we have, it's what should we do even if we need to build it from scratch, if it's gonna delight the customer. That's right, and so for example, when I, we started down this digital media path, my you know my manager, Steve Kessel and I, we, we, we used the, all the tools we've been taught in business school yes. about how to say, okay, well, Gartner Research says that the ebook business will be X size mm -hmm. you know, over these, these years, and Here's what music will look like, video, et cetera, et cetera. Here's what the P&L characteristics will look like for these businesses. Um, uh, let's create a SWOT analysis and look at our strengths, sure. weaknesses, blah, blah, blah. But it, in none of those things is the word customer yes. uh, mentioned once. And, in, and, and so what a lot of these um, techniques actually – uh, uh, tend to uh, reinforce is what's called a skills forward approach where a company looks at what are we good at today and how do we take those strengths and those abilities and, you know, move, as you say, move yeah. into adjacencies and create new businesses based on that. And Jeff rejected that and basically said, no, 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 no. Instead, we need to, to use um, our, our understanding of the customer and, you know, we had a good understanding of sort of what customers loved in the media business and our understanding of, of, and of what would, they would, you know, what would delight them in the future, but then not let, let, it, uh, not be held back by or constrained by whether we were, had specific capabilities in those spaces and we would instead follow what would be a compelling customer experience that could open up a big, broad market or avenue. In other words, you, you would you would conceive of, and the method we used, we developed over time, is something called the working backwards PRFAQ approach. Yeah, so, a good approach. Right, in this approach, 
Uh, and well, by the way, it was a trial and error approach to get there. We, we tried multiple <laughs> ideas before yeah. we landed on this PRFAQ. But all you do in this approach is you write a press release mm -hmm. that describes the, 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 the problem that a customer has and describes the product solution to the problem uh, that elegantly solves it for the customer and why this will matter to them. And the beauty of this process is that your press release should be one page or less. And it's incredibly lightweight. Any individual can write a press release. It doesn't require a team. It doesn't require special skills like, for example, creating a prototype or a mock-up does. Mm -hmm. And once you've described this, I, you know, this problem and, and articulated the right future state or solution, then you take step two, which is called the FAQ, frequently asked questions, and then describe, okay, well, what are the different issues, uh, challenges, hurdles we need to deal with to actually make this a reality. How big of a team will require? What special skills will require? How much capital? Uh, what technical issues? What partner-based issues? Et cetera, et cetera. And then you can use the, the combined document, this PR, press release in the FAQ, to then evaluate um, many different ideas um, uh, you can, you know, you can review 20, 30, 40 mm -hmm. different ideas with the PRFAQ process. And if you do this and do it well, the best ideas are going to float to the top. And then, and then, uh, in the FAQ, it may identify like, yes, well, we need to become very good at machine learning, even mm -hmm. though we're not good at that today. So how are we going to go do that? But if the opportunity is big enough, uh, then these problems, you know, uh, you want to identify problems that are worth solving because, uh, as we proved over and over again at Amazon, uh, just because you're, you don't know how to build hardware today, doesn't mean you can't figure yes. out, acquire that capability or just because you don't have a B2B cloud computing business today, doesn't mean you can't figure out how to do that. So let's take this conversation a bit deeper, right? If you are building products, services for what customers want, even if it's not adjacent to your core business. Amazon, obviously, like any company, has synergy across its business. But the starting point is not to look for synergy. Yes and no. So it would be, um, so let's look at what are the biggest businesses for sure. Amazon today? Um, uh, Amazon Web Services, mm -hmm. uh, the e-commerce business, mm -hmm. the digital device business, mm -hmm. the uh, corresponding digital media business, and then finally the the fulfillment business with fulfillment by Amazon. So there are um, there for each one of these, you can you can uh, draw a thread back to the original core business of Amazon e-commerce. Mm -hmm. Okay, so. In the case of the e-commerce business with Amazon, um, and then let's talk about AWS. Th these seem to be among the most divergent, right? One is a business-to-consumer sure. business, a retail business, and one is a business-to-business, -business, uh, 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 you know, completely kind of different area. Well, the common thread was as early pioneers of the internet, you know, when we, when we were starting off, when I joined the company in 1999, you know, we couldn't hire people that had e-commerce experience. There, there, no one had any e-commerce experience. Sure. And and then as we built things, whether it was the software to run the website, the software to run various back-end services to our website, the catalog search, or our warehouses, 
there were never, you know, today there's a dizzying array of SaaS providers sure. to solve each one of these problems. Well, guess what? Those didn't, those didn't exist mm -hmm. in those days. And so we had, we had to be resourceful and build them ourselves. But we noticed there are these, you know, common problems with sort of starting up something new and uh, which were all of the heavy lifting involving, you know, getting servers in place and storage solutions uh, that our software engineers looked at. And we looked at that and combined with a new technology that came around in web services. And in fact, it was um, my co-author Colin, his team in the associates program at Amazon, which is the, the network of third-party websites that link traffic into Amazon. And they experimented with Amazon Web Services by exposing certain services to, to affiliates to see what they would do with them. And there was a, just an explosion of usage. Uh, I just want you to explain something for the listeners. When you say explosion of usage, we're talking about the very, very early days of AWS, right? Offering much more limited capabilities. Well, this wasn't even AWS. This exactly. was just... Web, this is just the technology of a web service. So, so very exposed, basic, very rudimentary. We exposed the web service for the Amazon cat. So if you were an Amazon affiliate, yeah. you could access this web service that lets you access the Amazon catalog data, meaning you could, you know, the different titles, cover art, prices of all so of our like books. So this is just a big server. You're giving them access to it. They can pull the data they want. They can pull the data they want and then they can use it the way they want. Got so it. if they want to display, you could create a different version of Amazon on your website, theoretically, that, you know, made the detail pages look different. Yeah. And uh, it would just be a different way of exposing because, you know, a, a retail website is really just a, a digital catalog that then you have a, a, a layer to show show that catalog to people so they could browse and search it. And then you have, you know, ways to actually like buy stuff and check out. So mm -hmm. we were handling that first part, the catalog. How could people display that in some alternative way? And the point was that these, these third-party affiliates used it heavily. And then, you know, we, we observed that. And we furthermore observed through a conference, having them talk about what problems they had in managing their businesses. They all had the same problem we had, which was, yeah, it's such heavy lifting to start from zero of like getting servers in place and managing databases. And uh, and so it was really our own experience from those two things that then led to the kernel of Jeff and Andy Jassy taking that idea and saying, let's look at this further. I think there's something here. And then spending many months looking at it to figure out like, well, what does that, what is this thing, which eventually became Amazon Web Services. Okay, now so, this is interesting. This is interesting. I want to explore this part, right? Because I think there are a lot of companies and a lot of capable people across many parts of the world working corporate startups, governments, and so on. But a lot of times they don't know when to run with an idea. They don't know this idea could be big. So what I want to do, talk through a little bit, Jay, is when you're just starting off and you're getting some interest, how do you know that this is worth investing in this month, the next month, the next, what, what are the signals you're looking for? So, um, that's a really good question. So in this case, I would say there were, you know, if I were then to, um, reverse engineer this and, and use sort of the sure. Amazon processes that, again, this PRFAQ process yeah, sounds good. today, what, um, and this is the process the team ended up using to define the problem. There was this generalized problem that we observed. Mm -hmm. And the point, the, 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 the number one point we observed was 
that this generalized problem for every online company had the same sort of brute force, heavy lifting. In fact, the whole VC world has changed, right? In the early, sure, back yeah. in the late 90s, early 2000s, you would get your Series A money to allow you to afford to buy a bunch of servers yeah. to, to then really actually start running That's your thing. That's a good point. That's a good You don't do that anymore because AWS makes it that you don't have yeah. to go do that, right? So it's easy to see now with the value, but the point is, the value was that we looked at that and said like, huh, if we have that problem and we knew that problem very well yes. because we were, you know, we would solve and build this all the time. And if all these other people have the same problem and they look at like, how are they spending their time? Boy, if you could come up with a way for people not to have to do this, what felt like sort of plumbing or basic groundwork and focus on the value add part piece versus a piece that everyone has to do the same thing, sort of the, the, the nuts and bolts blocking and tackling, then boy, you'd unlock amazing value. Um, but that was all we knew at that point. We didn't yes. really understand like exactly how that would work. What would be the value prop? What would be the detail of how you would price it? That was what happened in the months and weeks afterwards is to look at that. That it was that understanding combined with the understanding of that when we made a web service available, wow, look how easy and fast it was for people to actually use that. So it's it's that pattern recognition. So what we would always say at Amazon is that we swim in data. It's 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 observing, you know, we didn't we didn't build things based on again, you know, the market research techniques I learned in business school. Like those did not lead to the development of, of sure. any meaningful products at Amazon. Yeah. We didn't use those. Those are good for like validating some idea once you've got it, but, but not they're creating. not good for you to come up with an idea. Yes. Let's explore this. It's very interesting, right? Because I think it's a common problem. So you've got all these affiliates and other people downloading these XML files and they're doing creative stuff with it. And you guys are noticing, hey, hold on a second, we're getting an abnormally high amount of interest versus other right. things. That's the first signal, right? Right. Then the next signal is, okay, people like this, they're creative. So you then had a conference where eight people attended. Right. I mean, eight yeah, people. Not, not, a, not mean, a big conference. Not a big conference. That eight people attend, but you still know there's interest and activity that's a little bit higher than normal, even though only eight people attended, right? So now my next question is, what is the next metric that you look for? Are you looking for the activity to stay roughly the same, for engagement to be higher, for there to be more engagement? How do you know you're onto something here? I understand that the market is big. It's a big problem. But how do you know that Amazon is onto something here? Well, the, the AWS one is a, is, a, is a tricky example because there's a big leap from expose yeah, <laughs> a web service for our catalog, <laughs> Amazon, to yeah. building core web service. Um, and that's where that's where sort of the, the, the I, I don't want to use the word magic, the hard work comes in for then really thinking about uh, and we would do this all the time, by the way. Like, I'm just telling the story of one that worked. No, but sure, of course. New technologies coming around all the time to say, okay, how do we apply this new technology in some way? Is there a way to apply this to uh, result in some big business? Like the, uh, I can't remember, you know, there was the explosion of, of you know, when um, the domain uh, world changed from just .com to the sale of, like, all those other extensions. Yeah. 
spent months and weeks in meetings with Jeff exploring like different, you know, what should we buy? Yeah. How should we, you know, what businesses could create from this? That didn't really result in anything. That's not really what the, the, it turns out those domain names are not really a decider for the web. But um, so you can spend a lot of time on these, you know, just to be clear, like <laughs> you can look at some new technology, yeah. but then figuring out how to apply it, just like people are looking at blockchain or now everyone's looking at NFTs. Yes. Figuring out then how to then create the marketable solution like that is that requires a lot of work and dedication. It was it was about 18 months of work between that, you know, say that conference of eight people of looking at these interesting patterns to then really thinking about what would be a product that you could build for this. Um, and it was a lot of refinement of the thinking through this 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 writing PRs. PRFAQs, meeting, discussing, um, and and uh, there's sort of no replacement for that that time of thinking it through up front. It would not have been as big had we not invested that time. Yeah, and you actually, there's a great line in the book, and you also mention it now, and I think this is maybe one of the central points here. The rate at which you iterate matters. Because if you're building something new that doesn't exist, which is what Amazon is doing, and you therefore don't know what the final product is going to look like because it's new. You have to be constantly iterating, adjusting, and learning. So it's almost as if, you know, you can measure success by your rate of iteration. Is yes. that a good way to think about it? Yes and no. There's a very, the, the, yes. And that, a lot of people have taken that and, and they can take that in a dangerous direction too. Yeah. So um, agile is of course a super popular way to think about yeah. developing and coding up products but there's a danger to agile which is that people confuse the fact that they have complete two-week sprints and, and ship new features and products every two week that that speed of that does not result in velocity because velocity is sort of speed plus direction mm -hmm. and if you're not going in the right direction going very fast doesn't do you any good so you have to, that iterative process has to uh, be very considered too. You have to spend a lot of time up front thinking about, well, what is it that we are trying to build? Like what, uh, what is the real problem we're trying to solve? Mm -hmm. And what are the different options for how to solve it? And if I do that, where does it lead me? Does it lead me down some big broad avenue? Or is it gonna be a small blind alley? And so that's really what we, you know, we try to communicate in the book that if you look at the success of products like AWS, if you look at the success of products like Kindle, the hallmark and, and um, we don't write about it in the book, but Echo, Alexa too, the hallmark of these products is there was a lot of refinement and time just working through a Word document and debating and discussing the exact right way what to build before we set down the path of building it. But yes, for example, some of the early AWS mm -hmm. services like Mechanical Turk, which still exists, that that did not catch on. And it's, you know, yeah. it, it's I, I'm not sure how popular it's still certainly not one of the most popular services today. It, it wasn't until we like figured out through our iteration, like, no, it's not about building that sort of service that's somewhat up the stack. And uh, we need to go back to like to the to the bottom of the stack to like core capabilities, compute and storage and we were you know we were trying to create too much of a service there with with mechanical turk and so really the bedrock of aws was when we figured out 
It needs to be at that most basic level mm -hmm. of computing, computing co computational uh, services and storage services. That's interesting. So you must be going in the right direction for the right reason, right? Then you iterate because you are iterating towards something worthwhile. But if you start off and you become very functional and just think, okay, we're going to iterate and ship a feature update every week and right. we'll figure it out, then you could probably go in the wrong direction. Right. Like we could have iterated on, we could have come up with 20 iterations on Mechanical Turk and it yes. wouldn't have mattered. Because it's the or, wrong direction. Because it's, we're working on the wrong thing. Or we could have envisioned, okay, well, that service doesn't work. Let's look at other sort of higher order services like that. And that would have been the wrong thing. It wasn't until, um, you know, the good kind of iteration is that we iterated and said, that doesn't work. Why is it not working? And we formed a different hypothesis. Our hypothesis is that we need to go down further in the stack. Let's build something there. Let's build S3. Let's build EC2. Yes. So it's about forming um, uh, brainlessly iterating is not useful. Forming yes. hypotheses where if you prove out the hypothesis, it leads to something big. That's useful iteration. Yeah, I like that, actually, because, you know, what normally happens is when people listen to what Amazon is doing, they try to create sound bites. And sometimes the sound bite loses the context. Yes. Now, in thinking about this, one of the things I realize listeners are going to do is they're going to say, okay, Bill Kai is a smart guy. He's worked on some key initiatives for Amazon. He knows Amazon, and I'm going to take some of these concepts to be more successful. But one thing I've realized is that if you adopt Amazon's culture, you need to be willing to accept some big failures. Yes. You've... It, any company that wants to, um, uh, so the reason why most large established companies where, why ultimately they become disrupted, they don't yeah. continue to innovate. They're the reason why <laughs> electric cars have not come from GM, they've come yeah. from Tesla. The, re <laughs> the reason yeah. why uh, the, the, the biggest retailer, fast growing retailer is Amazon, not Walmart is because large companies ossify. Yeah. They, and one of the, the major ways in which they ossify is that they become risk averse. They, they are focused on, I have this substantial revenue stream and I want to protect that revenue stream and anything that looks like diverting resources to something speculative uh, large institutions are good at killing those things. Mm -hmm. It's very hard, even at Amazon, I would tell you that even in early 2000s in Amazon, when I was working on digital media, you would be astonished by the degree to which there was a lot of, in, the, the amount of institutional resistance to it. I'm sure, yes. There was institutional resistance at the board level. There was resistance uh, from several of Jeff Bezos' direct reports. There was resistance down at the ground level. In many cases, when I tried to re recruit or recruit people to join the team from other parts of the company, they would say, oh, no, that's not going to work. Or uh, Because what they did is they the calculation in their mind was, I'm working on this other business that is already big. Why would I go to work on this little business or non-existent business where there's, you know, what are the chances it will become as big or bigger? And that's the calculation that everyone does, whether they are thinking about <laughs> their career, what what should I work on to they're the CEO or on the board and thinking about how should I invest in the future. So 
Um, they and they become and, and part of that is a fear of failure, a fear fear of if I go yes. and do that and if it fails, this will you know uh, be a big problem for me for my career. Um, and so you have you have to go out of your way. You can't you can't just give a lip service. You have to go sure. out of your way to create a culture where it is um, failure is acceptable. Big failure is acceptable. Yes expected and as you have to talk about it you have to talk about it as if you look at what you know jeff just on on record talking about you know yes fire Fund was a big failure and we're working on even bigger failures yeah. right now that like funny. that's very useful the fact that he says that like yeah. people go oh okay i, I can get fail. it yeah right we're going you know some of the stuff we're working on is not going to work um you have to say that because the 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 prevailing notion is to always of course you know be optimistic and keep a stiff upper lip and say, yes. this thing is definitely going to work. Um, you of course want to be optimistic and give it your best before, but you have to, you have to recognize that failure will happen and not blame it on the people that worked on those things. Because there's a lot of great people at Amazon. I can give you examples of where they worked on things that were stinkers yeah. and they worked on things that were super successful too. Yes. And it wasn't that these people became, you know, were meaningfully different uh, in one environment versus the other. It was that, the idea, some ideas are better than others. Mm, so when reading and listening to all of the tools and there you are know, some very powerful tools, I like the one about PRs, FAQs, that's unusual. I haven't seen any other company do that. The tool is only as good as the culture within which it is used. And if you're listening to these concepts and you have a rigid hierarchical culture where you know failure is punished, dissent is weeded out, you can't be as creative as an Amazon. No. Because no, the environment is toxic. It doesn't work. Yeah, you have to create a culture where at all levels of the company, um, risk taking is encouraged. What frankly the, the, the Amazon went as far I, I discovered in the third year of my career when I put together my annual plan for my business that my 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 boss rejected it. And his reason was you haven't put anything in your plan where you're planning to take any big risks. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I'd worked at companies like Procter and Gamble where no one ever, no, <laughs> no one talks one about risk. I do something like that. <laughs> right. Um, and he said, look, if you, uh, like you don't, don't take just some wild shoot from the hip risk, but think about your business and think about what is, what is a big initiative that I could pursue here? that it may or may not work, but if it works, would result in, would create breakthrough results, which is really the way to frame it. Now, it doesn't excuse you from also, um, you know, hitting, hitting your goals kind of on a baseline, but um, you need to also have uh, something big that you're working on that if it, that, that may not work at all, and it may set you back a bit, by the way, but if it does work, will propel you forward in a meaningful way. So let's unpack that, right? Because that's interesting. So directionally, you have to be low risk. You have to be moving in direction that's important to the business. But how you want to get there, you need to be creative and take the risk. So directionally low risk, but the how is the way you take the risk? Well, so one of the ways that Amazon solved this problem. So let's go back to the example. So here I was in 2003. Steve and I were managing this this 
physical media business. Yeah. So why didn't Jeff tell us keep running the physical media business and just now build out the digital business? Mm-hmm. In fact, we actually had an ebook business. Yeah. It was tiny. We had a team. We had like three people working on it. He could have told us, or what I'd say 99% of companies would have said, why don't you work on really building up that digital media team and go, you know, chase what Apple's doing and, yeah. and others, right? Um, so one of the ways that Amazon solves that problem is by compartmentalizing who's working on managing and stewarding the existing business that's paying the bills and then creating separable teams to go work on new initiatives. And so that was one of the first examples of that. So, sure. so we solved that problem because if we had tried to build digital media and take those risks within it, we would have never taken big enough risks. We would have never thought big enough. We would have never had the bandwidth or time to go create a hardware team, uh, uh, you know, bring in the right leaders from a software and technology mm-hmm. point of view. And so the way that Amazon figured out to solve this is by not making invention somebody's part-time job, Mm -hmm. but assigning the right leaders to make it their full-time job and letting other people, by the way, go, you know, stay with the business that's already built and manage that on a full-time basis. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's this concept of the separable single-threaded team. And, And every one of the major innovations that Amazon came up with, fulfillment by Amazon, AWS, the device business, digital media, in every case, we didn't get there until unless we actually took one of our senior most leaders, a, 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 a vice president, in some cases more than one, and said, you're now going to work on that and nothing else. You already have a huge job. Stop that job and go work on this because this is so important. And so that is really and, – and you can manage the risk that way too. It wasn't as we, we pulled we, – we didn't start off with a big team. We started off with no team. We had to go figure out. It's it's more like we are entrepreneurs with a we have we have venture backing. We haven't you know uh, dipped into our budget yet. Yes. Come up with a business plan and then get the backing and proceed from there. Okay, so now I think you've you know laid it out for me a little bit better. So Amazon is encouraging you to take risks, and the sort of safety net is if you want to do something. You've got to put together your plan, PR, FAQ. That needs to get approval. So take the risk, but show us you know what you're doing. Otherwise, we will not fund you for it. Is that the same? Yes. So what what I would definitely not encourage a CEO to do is say, yes, you, uh, Jane or Joe, I want you to go build me a new Division X. Here's a blank check for $100 million. (laughs) Yes come back to me in six to 12 and 12 months and tell me how it's going. I wouldn't do that at all. Yes. Um, instead it was like, you are going to go work on this new initiative. And the first thing you're going to do is behave no differently than an entrepreneur would in their garage. Yeah. Except you have an office here at Amazon you've got your, your, your paid, your, your, your career is safe and go come up with the plan, go come up with a detailed plan. That's what Andy Jassy did. So Andy Jassy, who will be the second CEO of Amazon? Mm-hmm. He had, you know, he had already he joined the company in 1997, and in 2000 in 2001 he took on this role of being Jeff's technical advisor or yeah. chief of staff. He he spent two years going to meetings with Jeff, and after those two years in 2003 he could have really rolled off and taken virtually any co- any job in the company. He was mm-hmm. a vice president, but he decided 
I'm going to go work on this new area of AWS. And really, for the next 18 months, all he did was hire people, build a team, a small team. This is not a big team, like you call it like 20 people, um, write documents, write business plans, product ideas using this PRFAQ concept to say, what are we going to go build here in mm -hmm. AWS? And they made some prototypes, et cetera, et cetera. They did that for 18 months before they, before they, you know, uh, uh, shipped, you know, the first shipped or, or, or started building the first yeah. product. So yes, it's, it's, and, 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 oh, by the way, what it's important to note, Jeff was spending at that time, starting in 2003, about half of his time with Andy and the AWS team and the other, uh, oh, sorry, um, a quarter of his time with Andy and the AWS team and a quarter of his time with, you know, me and Steve and the other leaders in the digital media team to figure out what we're going to build there. So he was actively cultivating those businesses and was working with mm -hmm. them step by step to figure out what they should go build. It wasn't a hands-off blank check process at all. It was a very hands-on, we're going to cultivate this together. I'm hearing a very consistent pattern in all of your stories. And let's Let's talk about that. It sounds as if the way Amazon works is you first pick the right person. You then talk about how you're going to do it. And then you decide what you're going to do. But, you know, just a cursory view of other companies, they first pick what they're going to do. Right. Then they hire someone behind it. Then they put the resources. It seems as if Amazon flips the script around. Yes. And there are some variations on this where in some cases... Uh, um, I would struggle to give you an example. Um, and some of these things, you know, post date me like, the, uh, you know, there's lots of mm -hmm. lots being said about Amazon and healthcare, And sure. did they just bring some of the outside from the outside? But even if they did that, the, yes, they would. The first step is we've identified this area of opportunity. This this seems like a big opportunity mm -hmm. to us because inside a company, you're if you're coming up with ideas all the time, the good best ideas are going to bubble the top. And and then at some point you say, yeah, we should staff this. You know, we should put somebody on this. We should put a leader on this who's going to make this real. And so, yes, the next step is like who who's going to go do this. And then they go away and they refine that idea because the, the idea at that point is probably is just, you know, kind of raw clay. And then they need to go spend, you know, weeks, maybe months sculpting that clay, redefining it very carefully. And as they do it, they're checking in with senior management. Like, here's my latest draft on this, you know, the, on the PRFAQ. Uh, you know, what's this product going to be? How's it going to work? And Amazon will do, you know, for for the biggest, most important products, like you could go through six or seven of those yeah. reviews, right? Um, where you're checking in with Jeff, and oh, by the way, he brings in other other leaders, so you're getting you're getting many wise, experienced heads to weigh in on these things. And then once they feel, once once finally like, yes, now this is this is the right plan. You've got the right PRFAQ and it defines in there you know, what the budget is. Here you go, here's your budget. Now go build that as fast as you can. So there's a lot of incubation of the idea, not of the yes. product. Right. There's a lot of talking about, you know, you talked about the PR press release. I like that idea. The FAQs, I'm guessing there's like lots of rewrites until yes. people feel that this is going to solve a big problem in a way that's going to delight customers. That's right. That's right. If you don't read the press release and say, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. 
we should go get, I should go get that. Then it's not worth doing. So keep writing, the, keep working on that until you're there. Once you've got that, then go work through the detailed questions. You know, how is this technically feasible? Yes. What kind of capital is required? And, and oh, by the way, as you do that, you may encounter plenty of examples of where that product and the PR sounds ph phenomenal. But yeah. oh, by the way, once you've now dipped into the FAQ and the feasibility, this really isn't a viable thing. It's not viable at this time, maybe, because yes. perhaps the compute costs are too high or the FAA hasn't approved, you know, drones to fly all over the place or whatever the sure. constraint is. Um, and so in some cases, that means you set it aside until those constraints are met. I mean, the, the initial document that um, that you could say it was the first articulation of Amazon Echo. Yeah was written roughly in 2004, and the Echo, um, if I get my history right, launched around 2013 or 14. That's a long time. like a decade later. Wow. So um, it, it didn't happen because the, the, um, the technology for the, we, that we needed for voice recognition you know, wasn't, wasn't there. Uh, among other things, there were actually several things that, that weren't there, but, um, you know, because frankly, that idea is just inspired by Star Trek, like you yeah. talk computer, you know, plot a course to study Alpha yeah. six, right? Um, the idea isn't, <laughs> the idea has been out there forever, but how do you, you know, uh, what's the point where the technology meets Catches the idea yeah. and how, and knowing when it's, it's time to reach out. Yes, there's some stretch I need to do, but it's it's within reach. I can stretch now and I can get to that idea. So coming back to the principle of single-threaded leadership, right? Does it mean there's one person who's 100% focused on this from 2004 to 2013 trying to figure out how to serve the market need? In that case, no. In that case, in fact, um, uh, it was a long time before someone was assigned to that. Um, uh, no, but in, in many cases, yes, uh, you know, a single threaded leader was applied to, to work on, you know, uh, I was the single threaded leader for, you know, for, for video. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, I started working on that in 2004 and the first version of the video service we launched was in 2006 called yeah. Amazon Unbox. And, but it really wasn't until uh, 2010, 2011, when we launched Prime Video, that we actually had the right product. Yes. So um, th that's where there's a good example of there were lots of iterations. Mm -hmm. between, it was a, a lot of iterating and trying to solve uh, the core problems. But it wasn't really until we solved, in that case, the core problems were a distribution problem, yes. having devices and apps mm -hmm. that were out there and having the right content. And it wasn't until 2011 that the pieces fell in place for us to actually solve those problems. So there's a lot of um, sanity checks going on here. In the one situation like the Echo, if the technology is just not viable, there's no point in having a signal threaded person right. because you can't do anything. It's, a, it's almost a physical do. barrier there. That's right. But if the technology is within reach, may require some R&D, but it's within reach and all the other pieces are doable, then you put the right person to try to find a way for Amazon to win because there's no insurmountable barrier. It's just creativity. Is that a good yeah, way to think about it? Yeah, and for, 
Yes. For example, let's let's use let's use a technology that we all expect will exist someday: flying cars. Right. Yeah. At some point, do we think that we'll be able to get in, get in a a vehicle of some kind yeah. and not have to be stuck on the ground? You know, I I I think it's fair to assume at some point in human development we'll come up with we'll solve that problem. Okay, yes. but you know, I'm not an expert. Uh, you know, I, I assume the problems are you know weight, power, uh, uh, navigation, safety. Yes. But you know, the point is that if you as a company or Amazon believe that you are looking at each, you want, first of all, you have to understand like what actually are all those barriers and then look at those problems and say, do I have now a novel solution if, the, if to the weight problem? Have I come up with a way if the hurdle is it has to weigh less than 500 pounds and here's yes. the heaviest part, I figured out a way to solve that problem. That's a good example of where um, uh, that's how to think about it, which is that understand what are the constraints and then the, 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 the leaders, the first ones there are the ones that, that are the first to jump over the hurdle to figure out, like, I've got the solution to, to one or more of those constraints. And, you know, it sounds as if the overriding theme here is identify the customer, make sure the customer is worth pursuing, and then work from there. And all these other tools are really enablers to get that, right? And then right. it sounds like the other thing here is that you know, manage your cash well enough so that you can constantly iterate and fail where you need to because it's going to happen. Yes, people, um, so everyone who thinks about Amazon today thinks of it as appropriately so, one of the wealthiest, most successful, largest companies in the world, which it, it is all of those things. Yeah. Well, in the mid-2000s, it wasn't any of those things. Yeah. And in fact, we had just escaped, we had barely escaped bankruptcy by the, skin of our chins in yeah. 2001 and we were a retailer and retail margins are thin thin yes, thin yes. like you know the most successful retailers in the world are great at driving out costs and staying lean and we were uh, you know uh, i could go on and on but we were not you know dripping with resources like if you if you could scrape together five engineers to go work on a project like that was magical um, I mean, today, uh, you know, people probably have 50 engineers falling out of their pocket at the company, but but that was not the case then. So the way that we so so again, sticking with Prime Video, let's look at that one, which is a, a huge mm -hmm. business today, where you know more than 100 million people around the world use that product, and and you know it generates a, a whole lot of revenue for the company by driving you know Prime memberships. Mm -hmm. And uh, but. The way, it, but it wasn't going so well from 2006 until 2011. So how do we, you know, why do why do we, we could have killed it, right? Why do we not kill the product, or why do we keep going? Well, mm -hmm. one of the reasons why we could do it was that I had a very small team. Mm -hmm. By you know, uh, by any standards, um, you know, I had about a 60-person team total working on that business. And while we were losing money, we were not losing that much money. And so the overall investment for the company was manageable. It was sustainable. And we didn't, did we take our money and do big, you know, we, what we did not do is ever use our money on one-time events that once you used it was gone, like yes. marketing. One of the, the you know, things you've, um, anytime you observe some early stage company that's, you know, doing huge broad scale marketing yeah. early in their evolution, you know, that's a signal that they are, uh, there's an excellent chance that they will not survive mm -hmm. because once you've spent that money, it's gone. Yeah. Um, and up. the most, 
important thing to do is to find product market fit and be sustainable. So we would be lean. We would have a small team. We would we have a tiny marketing budget. We were just focusing religiously on how do I invest every dime and dollar into solving the key problems of the customer experience. And then once we had the right formula, then then we exploded. And then I, and <laughs> I had a separate problem, which was I had to take that 60 person team and turn it into like a 600 person team, you know, in a matter of uh, like two years. So let's unpack. That's very interesting, right? So which product was it that you mentioned you had five people working on it? Well, five people were just a, for instance, of, of uh, uh, at any time, like you might be working, you sure. might be a, a leader example. of a retail business and you like, I've just, there's this one feature I need, this one I, I, you know, for my jewelry business, if I could just get this feature, yeah, yeah, I just need it. five engineers, but like you, you couldn't get them. Like, yeah. you know, you wouldn't get the budget. So let's go, let's go with this because I think it's interesting and it's useful. It's quite insightful as well. So the first thing is capital efficiency is a big theme at Amazon. Yes. You know, you make the maximum return from a dollar before you earn the right to get another dollar, right? Now, a lot of people presume that Amazon is so successful because they're throwing money at a problem. Yeah. But it sounds like it's the opposite here. You you keep an initiative large enough so that you can keep testing and perfecting it, but small enough so it's not a major drag on the business. And only when you get things right and you sort of build the right business model and you see some success, then resources are assigned to you. Yeah, so... I, you know, this is, I, I'll just caveat this, say this is a little unfair. I, I don't want to pick on them too much, but let's just look at um, early digital media. Let's look at what Microsoft did. Yeah. So my, while I had um, in digital music, mm-hmm. um, I had, again, about a 50 person team. Yeah. Small. Small, small mm-hmm. team. And I, and I actually had a bigger digital media business, music business than Microsoft did. Mm-hmm. They had, I don't know how many people, but I guarantee you they had hundreds of people. They were building the device Zune and the service Zune. Yeah. And they were spending gobs of money on marketing. And today, Microsoft has no digital music business. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't speculate on all the reasons why, but I'm sure that one of the reasons why is they spent, you know, tens, perhaps hundreds of millions of dollars between... 2004 and 2010 on Zune and were losing money and gaining no traction. So they mm-hmm. gave up, but they might have actually, um, you know, there, you, you, maybe they, if they had been lean and maybe if they had been, uh, conserved their money and waited, in other words, they spent a lot of money on the business to try to make it big. Yes. Amazon invested a little bit of money and waited until there was clear evidence that it was like big that. and then spent more money. It's choosing to deploy your capital to build something that works as opposed to deploying your capital to draw customers to something where you have no evidence it works yet. Right. And right. if they hadn't ho- spent $200 million, maybe they could have kept that business going because it was small enough to keep on perfecting it, but not so big that it became a drain on their right. balance sheet. Because by the way, once you spend all that money and say, here's what our first version of the product is, if they get it wrong, the changing of it is very expensive. You know, with my 50 person digital music team, I was nimble and we could adapt and like, okay, now uh, if this isn't working, let's go in a completely different direction. I mean, we started off 
We actually started off trying to build a what is today is the business mm -hmm. model. We tried to build an all you could eat subscription service yeah. for music. Partway in, we actually scrapped that plan and said, this isn't going to work because there were no devices to support it or not enough devices there and weren't good enough. The customer experience would be good enough. So now we're going to build an MP3 a la carte download service, which is what we launched. Yeah. And then today, as you know, no such service exists. Today, what exists is now a subscription all-you-can-eat service in Amazon sure. Music. And, oh, by the way, a variant on that in Amazon Prime. So by we remained nimble and we, we, we were able to adapt to what would really work in the marketplace. You know, this also reminds me of a discussion I always have with executives. You know, be wary of how you interpret benchmarks because you don't know how that company operates and why they're incurring costs the way they are and why they're hiring so many people. You know, they could have a very different operating philosophy, very different culture. That's right. And if you just say that, well, we need to have 500 people in our music division, you need to know what you're going to do with that. Yeah, I think the conventional wisdom for big companies is that when they see, here's this big opportunity, mm -hmm. Um, is then to use what they're good at in some cases, which is deploying large teams, large marketing groups. Yes. And then they think they can will it, they can will it into existence. Yes. And, and in fact, if I go back to the first meetings I had with Jeff on digital music, that's how I had approached it too. We used those conventional business school techniques. Mm -hmm. Jeff, here's the forecast for how yeah, big digital yeah. music will be over the next decade. Our pro let's project that our market share will be 20%. On what basis yes. do I did we have to project our market share? None. And that was Jeff's point. You're, the, um, it's, it's, it's ridiculous to project what your market share is. The market share will depend on do you build something that's delightful enough for customers to earn their their business and their trust? And so I think that's really that's sort of one of the ways that Jeff was smart to invert our thinking and say, no, 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 you can't focus on it. Um, and I, I encounter this with people that would show mm -hmm. up. On, um, I would hire people into the digital media team and they would assume, OK, well, now that I'm here, now that we're here, this digital media thing is going to work where it hasn't been working for the last four years. Yeah. Now that I'm work because I am working on it today, now it's going to become a thing. This is sort of the the it's it's for better or worse. We all have a certain degree of hubris yes. um, and overconfidence that just because we're working on it now, it's going to work. This is a very important point because I see this all the time, right? Not just MBA schools. And so I see this in corporate world every day whereby an investment is made based on the size of a market. If it's large growing. And then the thinking is that, you know, 5% market share shouldn't be too hard to get. So uh, if we can get 5% right. market share and it's a $2 billion right. business, let's do it. But then the question becomes, can you get 5%? That's right. The, the point is to focus on you, 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 uh, you're entitled to, to, to 0%. Yes. Now, develop the, the plan that proves why you're entitled to any percent. And the basis of that is that you've built something that is differentiated from the competition mm -hmm. and adds real value. If you're just copying the competition, now that can work if you say, I'm copying the competition, but I have a structural advantage and sure. I can make it 30% cheaper. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. That can work. Um, I mean, and that, that strategy 
Microsoft was great with that strategy for, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not great at the history of that, but, but you know, as, as everyone knows, the early applications that they developed, they copied off of other people, but they, I assume they had su uh, superior distribution capabilities or yes. some other capability that was crucial that allowed them to actually become number one. So if you have those, that's fine. But if you don't have some structural advantage, then you're, your, pro your product has to, your PR has to describe like, what is that? What's going to make it better for the customer? Is it, how is it better, faster or cheaper? And this comes back to the point you've raised a few times. It's that you've got to identify the person and you've got to identify how they're going to do it, which will give you the what, but you don't start with the what, which is what everyone does. You know, what are we going to do? We're going to enter the aerospace market because if we right. get 5%, we're going to be millionaires, right? Right, right. Or we're going to enter the electric car market. Yes. Um, or and, GM. And we're going to will it in. We're going to will it in. We're going to raise $2 billion right. and we're going to do it. Right, or GM being, oh, actually the best example, I'll tell you the best example that's willing it is Quibi, um, yes. which I observed this yeah. train wreck from afar. And, you know, if they had just called me up, I could have saved them a lot of time and angst. Um, uh, because I learned, uh, because I, we learned a valuable lesson about this at Amazon, but instead of blowing two and a half billion dollars, we, I don't know, we probably lost like, you know, two million. Um, and the Quibi was, you know, for those that aren't clear, that, mm -hmm. that was the, the startup with Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman, where they said, ah, there's a there's a hole in the marketplace. Um, the world's going mobile. Um, there's all these, you know, movie and TV show services like uh, uh, Netflix and Amazon that do long form mm -hmm. video, you know, 20 minute TV shows, 22 minute TV shows and 44 minute TV shows and movies. But people want snackable size content as mm -hmm. exhibited by their behavior on YouTube. Mm -hmm. So we'll make we'll we'll make. But YouTube has crap content. How do you take the high quality content of Netflix and Amazon mm -hmm. and marry it with the short form of uh, YouTube of like, you know, two to five minutes and make it optimized for mobile phones? So at one level, you could look at this and say, ah, this is entirely logical. They've they've looked at consumer behavior They've put some things together, mm -hmm. so this makes sense. But they forgot one, they forgot a couple of important things. What they basically did in describing is they described a new form of media. They described high quality mm -hmm. um, paid, you know, you have to pay for the subscription, mm -hmm. uh, short form content. That does not exist today. And I'll give you a parallel example of this. Back in Back in the mid, uh, 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 early around 2008 or nine, after we launched the Kindle ebook, right? Amazon launched something called Amazon Shorts, and which meant like, oh, now that we have ebooks, the short story can now mm -hmm. flourish, right? Short stories have never been a thing because who could buy a book that's one short story? Yeah. Now you can. Now you could buy a short story for 99 cents. This is going to become the thing. And we went out and we recruited great authors. We created a great experience. You could discover them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Well, guess what? Amazon Shorts never took off. And what I learned from that experience is to think that you can actually create a new form of a, a, a media form mm -hmm. where you know you defined it in cost, structure, size, and just because you will it into existence doesn't mean the customers will want to get it. And that's what happened to Quibi is that they they – 
they put a bunch of data points together, but the media, the, the form of media that they describe where people have to pay a subscription, it's five minutes or less, and it's high quality, it didn't exist. And guess what? It turns out that so far people don't want that. Um, and anticipating consumer behavior, if you think <laughs> consumer behavior is not logical. Yes. Um, and so you can't, so you would have, the smarter move would have been for Quibi to at some small scale tested this, validated that in fact this form of media works. Yes. And if they validate that's true, then go spend the two and a half billion dollars. That's how Amazon would have done it. And maybe a deeper insight here is that maybe the consumer is ready for this, but just not in the way Quibi delivered it to them. Could be. I mean, Could we don't be. know, but as you say, someone should have tested this. That's right. The point is they spent a whole lot of money on a product where they had not first determined if they had product market. It's fit. like the world's most expensive pilot. That's right. That's right. All right. So they went all out and they delivered this. Bill, thank you so much. That was one of the most entertaining calls I've ever had. I learned a lot. I think our listeners are going to like it. You clearly know Amazon well. The book's very well written. I enjoyed this. I mean, it was a great discussion. I must thank you for it. I know you obviously spent a lot of time working on the book. It shows a lot of thought went into it. I think, you know, it's whenever I read a book, I always think, let's find something useful from this. But in this situation, there were a lot of things useful. It wasn't hard to search for it. So I want to thank you for making yourself available and for this wonderful conversation. I really appreciated it. Oh, thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for the kind words about the book. No problem. Take care. We'll be in touch and good luck with everything. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.